You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, it's more fun to think about fantasy politics than it is to think about real-life politics. I'm Alexandra Rowland. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 16, Game of Anything Other Than Thrones. Anything Other Than Thrones. Anything. Hello friends. Hello, friends. Welcome. Happy New Year. It is New Year's for us back in the past. It, it is back. <laughs> By the time you listen to us, it will have been being New Year for probably like two weeks now. <laughs> We're recording but this we can on... still say Happy New we Year. We can. We're recording this on January 1st because uh, we're beginning as we mean to go on. Um, I guess this year we're recording podcasts. Yes, that's what we're yeah. doing. Did you guys, just as like a brief tangent, since we're not talking about anything important today, um, did you guys do anything fun today as your New Year celebration? God, no. I ate a bag of chips. I made chicken and waffles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was pretty much what nice. I did, was I cooked a brunch for my family. It was like the first big meal I've done this whole week that was just for my family as opposed for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I can be, I can be easy going with this one. It's been a lot of cooking these past few days yeah. for me. That's, 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 that's my holiday season is me in the kitchen, which I love, but it's also, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're talking about uh, politics today and uh, methods of governance and the world building thereof. Um, should we just jump right into like the basic sorts? Do we want to take a moment to talk about some of our faves? I, th I think that we should just jump right on in here. I think that this is, you know, if, if we're going to have a giant choose versus presume, I feel like system of government is like a linchpin choose versus presume mm. in fantasy. Oh, for sure. For sure. I feel like monarchy is like kind of the go-to system of governance for mm, all of fantasy literature. I love yes. you. I, yes. Folks, it's because I love you that I'm calling you out. I mean, and I have been there too. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, that tends to be the big presume in a lot of fantasies and often in a way that's not particularly well thought out in terms of how the government actually works uh -huh. like usually there's a king and he does all the things the king he does all the things with no like i i recently did a reread of the whole belgariad and oh, it's amazing yeah it's amazing <laughs> in those books like each of the kings maybe has like one staff person uh -huh. who like is like a count or something who just maybe is like who they talk to but other than that it is this total like i'm just here running the country running the country with no but also having enough free time to be like just hanging out and doing whatever he wants yeah. to do at all times all the time always exactly yeah. going on too many hunts spending the hard earned taxes of the citizens <laughs> throwing banquets <laughs> And, like, I'm not necessarily asking for you to get to, like, 
West Wing levels of wonkery, but I kind of am. I kind of like if your main character is gonna be the king, let's let's you know get all the way into it. You should like either have like there should be an actual system or there should be an acknowledgement of like oh fuck there is no system here. This guy's just winging it. Yeah. (laughs) Because one of those things is happening. Right. Because like if your main character, i.e. the king, is a person who is central to the government, like I think. I think it's not crazy to expect a writer to do a tiny little bit of work in regards to, you know, how a monarchy works or what this king might be doing with all of his time and whether there is literally anyone helping him with this job. Or if there's a person, it's like the person who just does all the things and there's no, there's no cabinet or division of labor or ministries or like, it's just like, no, there's just a smart kings delegate. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I, you know, there's this question of, of why in fantasy do we default to monarchy? And, you know, and I, I can appreciate to some degree the simplicity of it, that you aren't asking a reader to work very hard to catch Mm. up in terms of how does this government work because monarchy we all kind of like know how that works or we think we know how that works which is almost as good if you know you're reading it's a good symbolic um it is and so i can i can i'm definitely not calling out all use of monarchy in fiction because there are times that a shorthand works pretty well and that that's what's going to work for your story but you know obviously are you are you actively choosing that or is that just what fantasy somehow has mm-hmm. to be and obviously it does not have to be yes, that yes and i'm saying this as someone who who in my book i did choose a monarchy as the like preliminary system so i could challenge it and like throw right. stuff at it because that's fun but yeah kind of why is this why is this the choice that you're making why monarchy? so i have done monarchy in in mad books in two different ways i have done actually it's a representative democracy and they just still use the terms kings and queens which gives me that kind of symbolic shorthand um this was in a uh, conspiracy of truths so you have like the queen of pattern the queen of order the queen of justice Um, and so forth. And then I have done it the other way where it was actually a monarchy monarchy. And I was doing that on purpose because I wanted to throw things, as you say, Rowena, at the whole idea of what is monarchy? When is monarchy ethical? Can monarchy ever be ethical? And in, and under what circumstances? Um, Because that was, that's a a question that I like pondering. Yeah. And what I did in my book (laughs) is i made it a parliamentary monarchy because Ah, i wanted like to be the sort of like deep wonky parliament situation but i also did want to play with the idea of of there being a monarchy and what the king might mean to the people so i explicitly made it that that the throne is a weak power symbolic source of of Mm -hmm. power whilst the parliament is where the actual work gets done and then then i can also have plots with elections and plots with with voting and plots with like people on the parliament floor and all the sorts of fun you can have love a plot about an election we really do we do have we all written them i feel like we've all written them Uh, not yet but i'm going to but it's in there the the sequel to the manuscript i just finished is essentially about parliamentary elections so that's cool. So I want 
I want to swing back around, Alex, to your question about ethics yeah. and monarchy. Because I feel like one thing that we do have to grapple with if we're going, if you're going to use a monarchy, you know, it there are a lot of problematic elements mm-hmm. to it that we think about, you know, the stratification of of power and agency um, that you are consolidating it in, into a pretty clearly delineated upper class. Um, there's the issue of usually male inheritance, unless you're going to have a monarchy that also has women inheriting. But still, you know, we talked about in our family episode, you know, how how important is blood in your in your culture? How important is a bloodline? And obviously you're deciding in a monarchy unless you decide to have a different form of inheritance. Um, that that bloodlines are really important. So there's all these kinds of things that can actually, if you start poking at them, feel kind of icky actually about a monarchy. So like, how do we feel about that? How do you play with that? Do you play with it? Do you embrace it? What do you what do you do? I feel like okay. So when we're talking about monarchy, what we're talking about is usually a system of feudal governance where you have a person and under. We'll just say him because it's usually a him. Uh, And under him, there's like a subset of uh, provincial landholders, counts and dukes and uh, earls and so forth, depending on the size of their their fief. Uh, And under them, their land is broken up into smaller lands until you get down to the lordship. And uh, the lord reigns over a very small area, you know, where he probably knows the names and faces of a lot of the people that he is ruling. And feudalism basically only works and is basically only ethical when you have a sense of reciprocity, when you have the Lord caring genuinely and altruistically about the people in his, who are his tenants. He, has, he feels an obligation to take care of them to look after their best interests because what they're giving him their loyalty and he has to be giving something to them in return. Otherwise, it's inherently exploitative. Um, and that kind of goes all the way up the food chain uh, until you get right back to the king where the king, he can't know the names and faces of everyone in his kingdom, but he can know the people who are directly be- beneath him. And if he's taking care of them and they're taking care of the people beneath them and they're taking care of the of the people beneath them, then in that case, that is the only time when monarchy is an ethical system. Guess what? That never happens. <laughs> well, and also that determines, you know, it kind of has the um, determination of what are the values that we're going to consider at the basis of ethics. Right. And in that you have the ethics of duty and honor and reciprocity and loyalty. Mm-hmm. We're putting ahead of ethics um, that are sent putting um, equality or democracy or representation at the center. Which, you know, you start to get into questions of, you know, what's better, quote unquote, obviously, we're, we're going to have some um, biases there living in a democratic system mm-hmm. that we feel it kind of works better or preferably for what, what we value. But I think that that's something to play with, too, that regardless of the ethics that you're playing with, like you're also talking about your world's values. Yes. What do you value? The other thing that you tend to get a lot with, especially with fantasy monarchies, is the idea that the king needs to be this sort of righteous, good position. And oftentimes, especially in especially in those farm boy narratives, the idea that who the right king is, is a specific person. And if that specific right person is on the throne, everything else is going to be great filtering down. And thus, you know, that's going to solve all the problems because you have... This, you know, 
this good noble farm boy who's been raised to be a good noble person <laughs> then becomes the king. <laughs> Alex is going to explode. I, I, I am like writhing with from, delight from this okay. idea. <clears throat> so for any of our crossover listeners who also listen to my other podcast, Be the Serpent, you already know what I'm about to say here. There is a name for that thing, Marshall Ryan Ruska. Do you want to know what the name for that thing is? Oh, please tell me, Alexandra Jane Rowland. Are you just saying that, or do you actually not know no, what the re- thing is called? No, I actually don't know explicitly what you're talking, what you're <clears throat> okay. referring to. So, so this phenomenon is called the Heros Gamos. Uh, it means the sacred marriage, and you are you got like eighty percent of it, and you're missing one crucial thing because it also involves the king's marriage. The ki- if the king's marriage is healthy and prosperous, if they have and happy and uh, fruitful, then that will be reflected in the king's relationship to the land. So if the king and the queen have a happy marriage, then the king and the land will have a happy quote-unquote marriage as well. Um, So it's this whole symbolic thing uh, that crops up in mythology a whole lot of the time. Uh, You see it in the Arthurian myths as well, where like when Arthur and Guinevere are happy together, then everything's fine. But as soon as things go wrong and Lancelot gets involved, then the land starts falling into chaos. Because that also ties to the idea that, like, the actual royal line and the male inheritance is something so critical to the goodness and prosperity of the land. So thus, if the marriage is good, then the children will be born true and pure, and the line will be true and pure, and all that bullshit. And fantasy tends to, a lot of the times, if this is one of those big presumptions that you see a lot, tends to buy into that as text. I mean, you see that... The divine right of the king. The divine right of the king. But you see that in the Belgariad where like the Reven king is, you know, kept, that line is kept pure and separate and hidden for 800 years. So then Garion can show up and be like, oh, I guess I'm the real true king, which, and then you see the same thing in Lord of the Rings with, Mm -hmm. with, uh, with Aragorn, Aragorn, who Aragorn being the the king, who even though he knows he's king and everyone does, he's just like, oh, but I'm not gonna bother taking my throne because like I got <laughs> stuff to do. I'm busy, <laughs> okay. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm busy. Got like there's so many errands to run today. <laughs> <laughs> but then, I haven't it, even gotten to the grocery store. I haven't even <laughs> gotten. Yeah, I I just can't. And then in both those cases, you have like these things where it's like somebody is set up as the placeholder ruler explicitly as the placeholder because the idea that there is a true line and a true king that'll show up which i always find fascinating because it's not a thing you see in real government at all you never see like we're just we're just marking space until the real (laughs) guy comes back you might have a regency (laughs) if someone is underage and that's like about it and it's like this big deal like this is the regency you know this is like and it's defined and it's understood how long it's going to last. And and that can be a fun place to kind of play with political maneuvering, too, because it's kind of this in-between space between monarchs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, yeah. it's a space that people who don't usually get to play the game get to come play the game. So regencies can be kind of fun for political stuff if you want to play that game. That's a really good point, Rowena. Thanks. And on that note, if you're not going to have a monarchy or regency, what else could you do? So if you decide you're going to reject the monarchical system for your world, what options are left to you? Well, 
in this house we love a democracy which is again like why i made it a parliamentary monarchy so that i could like play with elections and 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 political parties and things like that and that's always a fun way to to play with the politics in your world well and it's fun too because when we talk democracy that's that's a whole umbrella of stuff right i mean you can have a Mm -hmm. you know like by the book democracy literally we're all everyone gets a vote we're all equal but usually usually we allow a little more bureaucracy to intervene than that and you end up with all of our different variations on republics and parliaments and all kinds of fun stuff right like Like, rule by a system of guilds right or something yeah i mean just like in whatever sort of democratic system you have just by defining who is allowed to vote and why you've already set up a whole different setup for your politics there like if it's oh yes we're a democracy where everyone can vote as long as you're born in one of the 14 families then you know or something like that Right. Or as was kind of the basis that we came out of in this country, land ownership was huge. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, that's it's an interesting way to define values for your culture, too. Like, how am I going to show the core values of my culture in the system of government governance? Like, well, you know, maybe you're you can vote if you're a member of the church or you can vote if you own land or you can vote if you own a business or if you have had children. You know, you could have all kinds of variations on what's the entry level to be a participant in a democracy. You can vote what? if you have a if you have a higher education degree. Yeah, a a thing that I notice in fantasy novels a lot is that people tend to assume that the lower classes have no interest in politics, and I think that that's a really kind of harmful assumption to make and one that doesn't get questioned a whole lot. What do you think? Like, have you noticed that? Like, the peasantry just, like, doesn't give a shit about who the king is. And maybe, okay, now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe the peasantry doesn't give a shit about who the king is or, like, who their elected whatever is because they're busy not dying of starvation today. (laughs) Well, and also I think whether or not people care has a correlation to how much they can do about it or how invested they can be. That's true. So, you know, I think that could be a really interesting point between, like, kind of national or big level and local government. Like, maybe the peasantry doesn't really care who the king is, but maybe they really care who's on the town council. Like, maybe that's something that, you know, you can play with a little bit more. Yeah. Well, what I I meant by doesn't care is doesn't pay attention to, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, or just being ignorant of. Um, Because there are, yeah, like, you're, of course... At that level, you're going to have more interest in your local problems, things that you can see and put your hands on, than you are about the national interest. Um, And especially in like pre-communication technology societies where you don't have a way of easily communicating with other places, you're going to care about your place. That's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, the king or whatever might be just, or the council or the parliament are just these assholes a thousand miles away who whatever they do doesn't matter like they're it's gonna be this this jerk who sends us to war or this other jerk who sends us to war either way we're going to war and half of us are gonna die anyway so it doesn't really matter and here's the thing 
peasants are constantly complaining about taxes. Taxes are like a real life thing that happens to them. They're the ones who are paying them. So like that is a political thing that is happening to them and happens to them regularly. And they are going to one, care about it and two, be invested in how it turns out. Yes. And listeners, right. if you thought that you were going to get through the politics and governance episode without taxes, you were sorely mistaken. <laughs> so wrong. Because <laughs> here we are. Because it really does Again. always come back to the taxes because that's just that's just how it goes yeah it's all about that economics so here's a question because we kind of poked around different systems of democracy and who gets a voice what's the line between a democratic system and a more oligarchic system in which they're both representation you have representation in both but one is is a broader scope and where's the line where it switches over to this is no longer democracy this is oligarchy i would argue that in a democracy or a pseudo democracy there's at least a pretense of the whole populace having some sort of input even if it's not really the whole populace by whatever means of restrictions like we already talked about but in an oligarchical system it is very explicitly like these families or these like the exclusionary is built into the system that these yeah. are the oligarchs of the of the government and nobody is going to even if it is like like a board of directors where they might be like okay john's out because we're sick of john's bullshit but but those decisions are tend to be internal rather than external right i have a similar answer that is slightly simpler i think that oligarchy is in the eye of the beholder because no matter how you cut it, if there are people, if there's a small section of the population being excluded for whatever reason, because Rowena's original question was, at what point do we cross the line? At what point does this stop being a democracy and start being an oligarchy? It's the more people who are excluded, the more people who are going to say, this is an oligarchy. And those people who are on the outside are always going to think that. And the people who are included are always going to say, no, 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 this is a democracy. So it's very much a um, subjective kind of question, I think, because there's no like answer. There, you can't say like, oh, well, if 60% of the population has the ability to, to vote, then that is a democracy, right? There's no like mathematical answer to it. There's no way to draw a real line in the sand. And also there's the, the matter of once you, when you have a, proper representational democracy there's still the question of who do you get to vote for because yeah. the oligarchy can show itself in those forms i mean i remember seeing a thing where somebody was talking about the 2000 election and how when it came down to it you were voting between the son of a former president and the son of a former senator so it's not like <laughs> yeah like you are you are allowed to vote between these two Squishy leeches. <laughs> the, the brown squishy leech or the icky yellow squishy leech. Which do you like worst? Don't vote for that one. It's not right. It's like this illusion of choice sometimes. Yeah. And also it can get worse than that because there's a lot of dictatorships, frankly, where you are allowed to quote unquote vote for the person who is in power. To keep them in power. Right. And there's not really another option on the, on the ballot. 
Right. Or if there is, we're just going to ignore it when it comes through anyway. <laughs> which, right. you know, every few years, you know, if, if you kind of pay attention to international politics, there's a scandal in some country over this that, like, so-and-so uh-huh. got X percent of the vote, but so-and-so, the incumbent, is not leaving office. And it's like, yep. yeah, so, well... Something to keep something to keep in mind in writing governance is the efficacy of your systems. There's a movie from the eighties called Moon Over Parador, which I, I have a lot of fondness for, but it's set in this fictional dictatorship country in Central America called Parador. But the election is coming up in which the people can choose between voting for the dictator red or voting for the dictator blue. <laughs> <laughs> right but it's still voting for the dictator either way you're still gonna be fucked either way (laughs) it's the same guy it's just you get to pick a color (laughs) that hurts a lot actually (laughs) this is a depressing episode why did we decide to do this It's a fun so we movie. don't do it later I... when it's even more depressing. I don't know. Oh god, yeah, later this year would be a terrible <laughs> time to do choice, to do that. Yes. But yep, you're right. Let's get this out of the way. So indeed, I, though, another, a, another... A, an intrinsic part of what makes an oligarchy an oligarchy is even if you have the illusion of choice, it's who do you have the illusion of choice between? Yes. 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 So another question that I had about um kind of systems and, and creating a system of governance is thinking about how centralized it is. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can have something operating on similar ethics or value systems or principles, but depending on how large it is and how centralized it is, it changes the game. And one thing I was sort of thinking about yes. is you think about like, like B.F. Skinner's Walden 2 communes, where it's like these little villages and they're all kind of like self-contained and it's very equal. And it's like this little tiny form of, of communism, really. And then you think of like Soviet communism, which looks completely differently because it's on such a large scale, but still centralized. And so how does both size and ability to centralize, and that starts to cross over probably into technology and communication, but how does that change the landscape of, of government? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think issues of scale are kind of at the heart of all problematic elements of government (laughs) because like every form of government that has ever existed was invented because it served a purpose it was useful at the time that it was created and then it tried to scale up and got bigger and there were now problems that it couldn't solve and things that it wasn't good for except we already have the system in place and it's harder to get rid of it than it is to just sort of ignore those problems or put like a, a duct tape solution to them. Yeah, I don't know that I have an answer to your question, but just issues of scale are fucking bad, yeah. actually. <laughs> but important to keep in mind, though, if you're, you know, if you're writing that yes. you can have something that maybe a value system works really, really well on a village-sized Scale. like feudalism feudalism, feudalism <laughs> works fucking great for the village on a village scale feudalism is when you have like one guy who's in charge of taking care of everybody feudalism is fantastic when it starts spanning a like small island the size of britain or like all of france then it gets weird and you have to bring out the guillotines <laughs> and you have to bring out the guillotines everyone that's your <laughs> that's it that's the end of the episode <laughs> goodbye <laughs> no it's not <laughs> We still have half an hour to go. I don't know how I'm going to top. Then we bring out the guillotine. We'll just add it at the end. <laughs> but 
But that is definitely a key. I mean, that brings up a key point of when governments fail, what is what are the consequences of that failure, especially if it's set up in an ideal of like divine rights of kings and all and or that, you know, God has ordained this. And we haven't even touched into since we're doing fantasy bullshit half the time, you can add in layers of like like literally chosen by God as Fuck, to be the ruler yeah. or or some other magical system as the methodology for deciding who the ruler is. Ladies distributing so, yeah. swords from pawns, yes. Strange yes. women in pawns distributing swords. I mean, that can be indeed be your system of government. Um, there's a wonderful system in uh, the Dragon Age games where there is a nation that has... Uh, rule by the mage class uh, and everywhere else mages are kind of treated like mm, you could explode in demons at any <laughs> second so we're sort of suspicious of you except in this one country to venter like they have just taken hold of the whole government because they're fucking mages and they can shoot fire from their hands <laughs> why wouldn't you take over the government well and this is a good question that if you have magic in your world why aren't the practitioners of magic in charge of your world? Uh-huh. Yes. Do you have a reason actually. for this? Or is it just because it's more convenient for story writing when they're not? Like, what is stopping the people who can shoot, you know, lasers from their eyeballs or whatever from just taking over? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually it's because there's not enough of them to do it and that ties to your rules of magic and that also ties to scale like if you have a guy who can yeah. shoot fireballs you know yeah he could probably take over a village but again does he have the ability to like withstand an army or something like that right. or does magic not scale very well to the army level and or something like that or frankly the interest in running a country because so many people are just not fucking interested <laughs> in running a country uh, like we ask my tower and read my books <laughs> honestly truly though like asking the question why aren't the mages in charge is an excellent question and we should totally be like entertaining that question but also they're mages they're study nerds they probably just want to be left alone <laughs> That's a valid answer to the question, by the way, yes. dear listeners. You're allowed to take that and use it for yourselves. But though in systems where, like, say, magic is the solution to the scalability problem, like if you're using magic as your lines of communication or such, that there is, like, the court mages or something like that, then you do have to ask yourself, like, if these people are embedded within the infrastructure, why aren't they in more of a position of power is there a specific yeah. reason for it is it who who's is it melissa caruso's tethered, tethered mage, mage series that yes. that the mages are explicitly controlled by the government so that's like I mean, no yeah, they're, they're basically enslaved you know like if you have yeah. magic no. you get tethered to someone and you get to serve the government and that's what you get to do that's fun <laughs> <laughs> Except it's not, and it gets challenged a lot in the book. So that's a good thing. Right, yeah. <laughs> but there, there is a specific textual solution to why haven't the mages taken over because the government has taken over them instead. And that can be also a legitimate answer to, to your question of why the mages aren't just in power. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What other... So we've touched on monarchy. We have mentioned dictatorships. We mentioned a little bit of democracy... Any other 
sort of systems of government that we should chat about? What are some that you see in, in fantasy novels other than, than these? Less about systems themselves, but a big thing that always bothers me in fantasy novels and is a big choose or presume thing is the idea that systems of government change over time. Because Ooh, often, often you have a thing where like the government is this just like that's just what has always been there and mm -hmm. it's going to stay that way forever. And, and you don't have, say, you know, first there was an empire, then the empire shattered, and then we had a bunch of like petty kingdoms, and some of those kingdoms got back together and formed a smaller empire, and then that, like, you don't see that level and we'll get into that sort of thing a bit more i think next episode yeah, where we're so. talking about deep history of stuff but you don't yeah. see that sort of thing of like and then we tried democracy for a while and democracy was a complete failure so we're like <laughs> we want a king again and we got a king you don't see that too often in in your fantasy novels here's the thing that i see a lot of times in fantasy that is related to your point uh marshall ryan maresca which is how like a dynasty has been around for like fucking 500 years do you know how long 500 <laughs> years is it's a long time there there's a lot in fantasy that bothers me in terms of people seeming to not quite grasp how how time really how is works. time how time is a thing because like yeah you'll have thing. you're like oh yeah we've been without a king for 900 years but like no you so haven't you have had some other system of government <laughs> and we're just being patient <laughs> just waiting for the king to come back yes yes i mean okay and like when we talk about dynasties i'm talking about like one particular specific family lineage in a clear line of succession for like 500 years because there certainly have been um dynasties that lasted for a couple hundred years but usually they weren't a direct line at some point it jumps over and someone's like distant cousin or uncle or like there's some there's some brother-in-law happening over. within there where <laughs> where yeah like you have you have that queen yeah. you have the queen victoria moment when it's like oh oh you well okay i guess Right, I guess right. it's or the Queen Elizabeth moment where it's like, yeah. oh, we've got some three choices that none of them we particularly like. Let's try this. one. No, she's terrible. Let's kill her and try the other one yeah. and remind her that we'll kill her, too, if she's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, time is a thing. And most people don't just hang around waiting for their king for 900 years. <laughs> they come up with a new system. People. Very patiently. Because, like. There are, the government, theoretically, is supposed to deal with the problems of organization, right? It essentially comes down to administration and, like, there's a thing that we want to happen. For example, trade, because it always comes back to economics. And we need someone in charge of making sure that this all operates smoothly. That's kind of where we get government from, is saying, like, okay, Bob, you be in charge of making sure that all of the ships that come into harbor dock where they're supposed to, rather than everybody crowding to get the best spot. That's that's the beginning of government right there, because after you have that, then it gets a little bit more complicated and a little bit more complicated. And then Bob has too many too much to do on his plate, so he has to hire some assistants and delegate, because a smart king delegates. And then one of those assistants is like, that's the guy who 
if you give him a few extra coins, will not pay too close attention to what's in the bottom of the ship. And uh-huh. <laughs> and the system yeah. gets more and more complicated. And that's that's how right. it works. And, of course, in your books, there's a limit to how much you're going to want to really show all the details of that. Because God knows it's going to get boring. You don't want scene yes. after scene that's just, like, people in meetings. Like, <laughs> I mean, I kind of want that book. But also, like, we spend... It depends like, we, on how it works. There's good books mention, that do that and bad books that do that. We always mention the choose versus presume. And I do want to point out, it is occasionally okay to presume. Yes. Like, yes. like you could do that. It's totally fine. You could just, as long as you, like, notice that you're doing it. And make a choice to presume, I guess, is what I'm right. saying. Well, you have, have that awareness that, that, that I am I am not going to get into this for the sake of my dear reader who yeah. does not want to come to all of the zoning meetings with me while we figure this out. because Who doesn't deserve to <laughs> suffer like this. <laughs> Even though I should say I, I do open my book with someone waiting in line for a permit. So maybe you did. I, I loved that, actually. No yes. To talk. <laughs> that was one of my favorite things though i love that but like if your book is about like a bunch of people who just go from village to village and killing monsters and such the fact that there's a king somewhere in the distance and isn't really part of your story like fine like just make that presumption and that's okay like so things like that if they have a monster killing permit that's okay too <laughs> yes indeed if like if the bureaucracy of like look you're over your limit. <laughs> you can't. Oh my god! It, listen, have, it is not monster hunting season right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. This this is a buck license, and this is a doe monster. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> Look, you can't take out the whole bugbear population because then the whole ecosystem in this vi- in this area gets complete. <laughs> If you kill yeah, all the you... bugbears, then nothing is eating the sheep, and the sheep take over the valley. And no one wants that, because sheep are assholes. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like this is something that we do kind of sometimes skim over on the whole government thing, is that, you know, it's it's there to corral and prevent larger problems from happening. And theoretically, in a good system of governance, it, it's for the benefit of the most people. So yeah. you can, you know, you can even kind of have fun with ineffectual government, creating problems or you can have fun with putting you i'm sorry do you want to do you want to say that sentence again in this the year of our lord 2020 <laughs> i'm thinking more fun problems like sheep but you know <laughs> but along those lines like even if you have your system of government be the a central authority one person is in complete authority over everything like whatever they say is the law there's still the matter of who actually executes that and how well that's actually ex- executed because you can have a whole system of government where somebody thinks they're an absolute monarch but what they're actually saying doesn't really go on in different parts of it because again you have you have delegation and you have lines of communication and all the fun errors that can that can occur in that another thing that I think fantasy doesn't take advantage of enough is the how like the more minor and petty the position you hold the more you like puff yourself up about it and like glorify it so give me like the head clerk of the sure monster hunting license (laughs) department 
and how he's like, I am the only thing standing between the nation and chaos. (laughs) (laughs) And then give me 150,000 words of the interdepartmental politics. I want this on my desk by Tuesday. Go. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, in my book, in the Fenmere job that's coming out, it's coming out next month on February 25th. (laughs) Um, There's this whole bit. There you go. There's this whole bit where, like, information on who's actually in mage circles is protected information. Mm -hmm. But one of the characters is like, yeah, it's protected information, but the clerk who has access to that protected information. I've been going down to the office with pastries and now I've been able to, to sneak a peek at those files and figure out the information that we need. Like that's sort of, again, on the petty bureaucrat level, you can have a lot of fun playing around with those things of what, who has access to what and who can stamp what. And you yeah. did a fair amount of that also in your book, Rowena, didn't you? I, I did. I did play with that. Um, and also how kind of ordinary people understand their connection um to a governmental system and what what games do i have to play to kind of come into it and one of the things like it was a super minor detail in my book but the main character has to get this permit every year to keep her shop running and so she invests in like a nice little portfolio so that she looks professional when she goes into the office to get your stuff stamped because you know there's there's an element to any government system unless it's run by perfect people which there are none so we'll assume that biases and prejudice are always going to sneak their way in and i mean i as you said alexander roland in the year of our lord 2020 we can still (laughs) look around and often it's in those you know systems that should work just fine but that's where biases and prejudices really come in it's because people who are running those systems are biased and prejudiced and that's where yes you know a something that looks great on paper can still fail in its you know objectives and mission because humans are humans and they screw up and are biased right right And like we talk about governments as an abstract thing, but at the end of the day, governments are made up of people and people are inherently flawed. I just remembered um, it's in Brian McClellan's Gunpowder Mage series. Uh So there's a whole thing because it begins with like the king has been overthrown by this rebellion and then they're going to like rebuild a new government with no kings, except then they find out that the whole thing of the kings of the whole region was literally divinely decreed by the gods and so without one of the son without one of the children of the proper bloodlines as the king then the gods are like oh no this is bad we're not going to accept this and and apocalypse breaks out because (laughs) (laughs) because no it was in fact supposed to be that the kings are in charge it was an actual divine right of kings (laughs) yes that's that's kind of fun you know one thing i realized too while i was writing um this trilogy that started out with the idea of revolution and i was i kind of came to the realization that's like everyone wants to read about the revolution very few people want to read about the continental congress like (laughs) (laughs) marshall ryan breska and i just raised our hand (laughs) but you know there's there's a line between um the shorthand that we use for governmental change and societal change and what actually happens in the real world to make that change occur and and the shorthand part is often more fun 
um, to, yes, it is. to read. And, and I think that there's, there's a reason that some of this stuff gets skimmed over because, oh my God, I mean, if you ever like think about like, God, we went, we went like half a decade without a constitution because we were busy arguing about it for a really long time. I mean, no one wants to read that book. Well, except for other people raising their hands. Here. Except except, except for, for me and Marshall Ryan Maresca <laughs> raising our hands right now. <laughs> there is a reason why we celebrate the 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence, rather than, rather than the ratification of the Constitution years. by all 13 colonies or something like that. Because... Because, and there was like the, you know, first there was the Articles of Confederation. Mm-hmm. Then they were like, oh, wait, this is garbage. We need to throw this away and start <laughs> this again. This a nice starter. Because... Good first draft. Good first draft. <laughs> it was a good first draft, but mm, kind of. And let alone there was whatever six hour thing like Hamilton presented on the floor. Of, oh, of, yeah. <laughs> when he like, just like, like ch- talked for six hours. Yeah. And they're like, that's weak. Mm-hmm. Um, we can use some of that, but that's too much. You like, sound like you have a comprehensive plan here, son. A for effort, How Alex, you let but someone else just talk? too much. Thanks for your input. We'll take it under advisement. <laughs> Please, for the love of God, sit down. But yeah, yeah like, if you're going to have a rebellion, like, especially in rebellion plots, because nine times out of ten, any revolution of a dictator replaces the dictator with just... A dictator with different ideas. And so very rarely do you get a revolution that really changes things and has people sit down and be like, okay, what's our government really going to be? And that can be a fun thing to go into, especially in a fantasy narrative, where, again, the presumption of monarchy is so strong that it's it goes almost unquestioned. Like, almost nobody would be like, why did you do a monarchy? I don't even, like, because... <laughs> like, because that seemed like the thing yeah, to do. It, it seems like the thing to do. It is It is probably the biggest presumption in our choose versus presume yeah. things in fantasy, in fantasy fiction. Well, and I think even, you know, we were talking about how do governments change over time. And we immediately jumped to revolution, rebellion, as a way that governments change over time. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge choose versus presume, too, because really you look at most changes to governmental systems happen incrementally over time over systems of reform. Like, usually yes. we fall back on reform before we, you know, get out the pitchforks and the torches. Because like, that is a giant heckin- pain. Have you ever, like, really thought about it's how a good pain a revolution is? No. If all you- the time, actually. <laughs> all the time, every day, I think about how big of a pain revolution is. <laughs> I'm weighing my options right now. <laughs> we are actually weighing our options. Every day, I'm like... Is it worth it to buy a guillotine on Amazon? <laughs> no, the assembly is a really big pain in the butt. It's honestly, it's yeah. Just a pain. You want to get it from IKEA, really? Oh yeah, go look at the pictures. Um, Dear IKEA, product yes. suggestion. Even those like walk up to the edge of of revolution to cause to bring about reform, like those can be interesting stories, but they are again about changes and in government and more complicated levels of government than you usually get. Like, I really do want to see somebody... I mean, I I, am, I have not read The Goblin Emperor, but I am it's led so to believe... Good. It is kind of like fantasy West Wing in terms of, like, really delves into the wonkiness of, of how the government works and... and... It's, it's not quite... Like, there's more plot to it than that. It's not just, like, a fantasy West Wing episode. There's a lot of that, but... 
like and like one of the things that he negotiates is like the building of a bridge and so forth it's really cool but it's not like overloaded with politics man what i would really love to see is like fantasy magna carta yeah yeah yeah, because that was not, like, a violent re- revolution. Well, okay, I mean, like, they did kidnap a guy <laughs> and, like, it... hold him on an island for a couple days. But, <laughs> like, in terms, of, <laughs> in terms of, like, violent revolutions where everybody dies. It wasn't a complete flip the tables. It was a, right. it was a you sign this now or else the tables get flipped. Right. <laughs> but... It was like, th- we're staging an intervention. It's time <laughs> for you to be a big boy and sign this piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> so something that we have have brushed against in talking about the divine right of kings, but I think takes on an even bigger role in government frequently is religion. Um, oh, yeah. And the link between government and religious institutions. I mean, historically, that has been in many places over many times huge. Um, mm-hmm. So like, how do we think about the interplay between religion and government well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest. <laughs> yes, yes. Because in, at least in Western European history, the church has been kind of a secondary government, kind of yes. laid over the top of the, like, political government. And so it's been a really interesting thing to watch over over the course of history, is to watch each of these individual monarchs trying to interact with and interface with this larger quote-unquote monarchy i.e the pope and god which is its own government in and of itself with its own hierarchy of i mean you uh-huh. basically have the, the pope as the emperor and then you have the cardinals as the kings under the emperor and you have bishop archbishops yes. under that and you it's the same system and when you're working with this idea of like oh this king was chosen by god right and then the pope comes along and he's like hi i'm the pope i was like triple squared chosen by god so like (laughs) (laughs) i am out i am outweighing you on this And and if these religious institutions can frequently have just as much or more money and influence than Uh your political systems so yeah, I mean, there's there's the I'm playing the God card, and there's also the I'm playing the I have a shit ton more money than you card. And yes. that can kind of get, get fun. Yes, so one thing that I'm very bad at world building in my books is, like, religious institutions. Um, I don't have them, basically. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's just because, like, I was raised as an atheist and didn't really have an experience of the church as like a thing that I ever had to interface with really other than how it affected me when other people were involved with it um but yeah I'm actually very bad at religious institutions and that makes it so that like I don't have that aspect of like the king having to answer to a higher power i.e the pope or even systems where, like, the political government and the religious government, I mean, can be the same. You know, you can, uh, yeah, a you can theocratic have state. a theocracy. And, and in, in my book, the neighbor to the <laughs> north of the main country is, it's, it's an oligarchic theocracy. Like, the people who hold the most power in this system are the heads of the religious orders. So, mm-hmm. like there's it's the the pure impulses of the church are not like there is there is a lot of of play for political power and agency that has very little to do with any kind of religious faith expression okay so the 
uh, since we only have a little bit of time left in the episode, let's move on to the uh, world building in our world section of the episode, which I don't know about you guys, but it's one of my favorites. Um, instead of doing the usual, uh, each of us develops one of our, our three countries, we're going to introduce a new country because it's time for uh, some new players on the field, I think. So uh, who wants to start? What sort of, like, are we just doing the government or are we doing, like, sort of a brief framework of, like, aesthetic that we're going for with this country or well, I feel like it's the really, environment that they yeah, live in? I feel like it's kind of hard to get to government without at least having some sense of, of where this place comes from. Like, what kind of a place, I agree. what kind of environment did it come out of, and then that helps to inform I, why does the current government make sense? I think I completely agree. I think that we do not have like far northern like snowy cultures represented. Like I'm thinking kind of a um, not even Russia, but like outer Mongolia kind of situation where you have the steppes and the the cold Gobi Desert and the driving winds. How do we feel about that? That sounds neat. And mountains. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Well, that is neat. It Uh, it just is. So. Along those lines, one of the things we didn't really talk about too much earlier is the idea that government can be multicameral. Where, mm-hmm. I mean, we what do have you mean that, by that. In it literally means multiple houses that you can have. Like we've talked about, you know, like I said in my book, I have a, I have a parliamentary monarchy where you have the king and the monarchy, and you have the parliament, mm-hmm. and they both have a say in exactly how the government goes. And again, how we have it here, where we have the two houses of Congress and we also have the executive branch. We also have the judicial branch that are in theory, three co-equal parts of government. So you can have a system where you have multiple centers of power that are equal to each other, but each of them has its own base of power. So you can have a system where you have, say, the elected body of the, you know, of a parliament or a senate. Mm -hmm. Plus you also have, say, the appointed body of military governors. Plus the... Inherited body of, like, the sort of uh, figurehead king. Right. And each three house has the same level of authority or they have a system of checks and balances. So that within your government you have these three or even more different systems and i think this can be a really good way too of retaining tradition and cultural elements within government even when more things are needed like we talk about we a lot of government is created to deal with necessity so like mm-hmm. the inherited seat of government person that's just not gonna cut it anymore so we create something else to to supplement but still retain that tradition yeah what i would also like to see in this an aesthetic thing that i am being drawn to right now is i love the multi-cameral system that we're sort of leaning towards i want a branch of government that is specifically about the mages and i think that it should be tied into religion in some way so it's kind of it's kind of like the church but it's it's also just the mages so magic practitioners are tied yeah. in with the religion in a particular way that also is part of the governance. Right, right. Now, we had talked so about that you're each, like... each of our areas is a different way magic works. So does this, how does magic work in this 
I see wind-torn land that we have created and and my my instinct now I'm not committed to this idea but my instinct is that I want it to be something about divination which I that makes a lot of sense for this place I mean it's it's not an easy place to live so having a little extra help would be kind of important and then Uh I could definitely see that being um you know obviously your government system if you have the power to have some form of divination, like government's going to want to know about this, right? Like, I mean, that's going to work very closely with decision-making. Right. And the king is also going to want to be as much on the sweet side of the mages slash church as possible, because if they say, oh, we got a vision that says that the king should be overthrown because we don't like you. Like, they don't even have to tell the truth, right? Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> governments are made out of people and people are flawed. Like, if someone just says, oh, yeah, I got a vision, I did some divination, and this king is not in charge anymore. That's going to be, like, hugely impactful. So, so, so what, what, if, what if for kicks and giggles, instead of having a king, if we have a rather large, difficult territory that people are living in, I'm guessing that their, um, their communities are pretty strong. And maybe you have some kind of like ruling families. So what if instead of a king, you have like a council of ruling families that are kind of at the top of this, this like pyramid thing that kind of. No, one of the families is the family in the charge, family, but like but they kind of come together as a cohesive, sometimes not so cohesive unit. Um, council of Lords. So you have like throw out a random number the 13 families thir- 13 i love 13 number. families love it love it i was leaning towards 12 but 13 is even perfect. better yeah so you have the 13 families as one ruling body that is like the the primogenitor bloodline right you're ruling body from from the, tr- then from you the have, traditional 13 families of your you have the council of diviners which is the religious magical organization yeah. which is theoretically neutral yeah. In that, because they are separate and that they also, they're something that is looking towards pure truth or pure divination, yes. that it doesn't matter, like, which family ends up on top to them because they're serving a power beyond that. Uh-huh. And Love then, that. so that's two houses for a multicameral thing. What, like, what so, would be... So what's what's missing? We have our kind of guilds or yeah I was gonna say so we've got our like traditional like figurehead type people and we have our religious dispute um determining divining people who's dealing with the everyday problems of like cleaning up your reindeer shit or I whatever feel like it would be guilds. so we have like we need, we need yeah. pragmatic guilds who are going to make your like you need to have a license for you know, more than seven reindeer on, on your sledge. And also those camels um, need to go somewhere else because they're in the wrong part of town kind of, of issues. And I think like something like a confederacy of guilds that does the work of the legislative body stuff of like, uh-huh. and thus... Like the boring you, everyday shit. Yes. The boring, the boring everyday, everyday shit. shit and also we... <laughs> that sense of sort of like restrictive democracy where each guild has their own representatives and has their own specific interests. And then you get that fun 
you know, political gamesmanship of like, we need a bridge built here because we want to get trade over this river. And other people are like, okay, but you need to use lumber from this side of the, of, of the land because we need to sell you that lumber because that's in our interest. And things, you can, you can have a lot of fun with that sort of, that sort of system. Well, that's also where you can have your democracy or at least illusion of some democracy come in, right? Because, well, if right. you want to have a, anyone can join the guild, you know, well, just you're a woodcutter, join the lumberers guild. And then maybe someday you will be the one who represents us on the, the council of guilds. Yes. And if you get high enough in the guilds, then, oh, you may rank high enough to marry someone in one of the 13 families. And then your children could one day rule the country. And, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, I love that. Uh, we don't have a name for this country, but how about we post on Twitter to offer our dear listeners a chance to name the country with some of their suggestions? How Brilliant. do you guys feel about I that? Love it. Wonderful. I love this idea Excellent. and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic dear <laughs> listeners uh we'll tweet about this come give us your suggestions for what we should name this Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on February 5th. We're taking a step back and looking at the big picture. The big picture. We're talking about deep history with a guest star, Shannon Chakraborty, author of City of Brass. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We are on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. The Ottoman Empire didn't have inheritable landed titles like Duke, Earl, and Count. All provincial governors were appointed by the Sultan from the ranks of ministers, who often came from the Janissary Corps or the palace schools, which took in boys as young as eight and educated them specifically for the purposes of entering the civil service later in life and, theoretically, being intensely loyal to it. <laughs>